Hi everyone, it's Leslie Seidel here. Before we get started on today's podcast, I want to let you know that today we're going to cover some explicit language or content in this interview. If you are listening in a place where there may be little ears or this might be inappropriate, please pause and grab some earphones and rejoin us. Welcome to the Spirituality Out Loud podcast, where you'll hear real-life stories of people's unique spiritual journeys in their own words from their own viewpoints. Hosted by Leslie Seidel, relationship expert and spiritual mentor, who specializes in working with people on their relationships, from their romantic life to their work life and just plain life. Here's Leslie. Welcome back to another episode of the Spirituality Out Loud podcast. I'm Leslie Seidel, and I can't wait to dive into today's interview. Today we have Peter Rubin. He is known as your business midwife. He guides his clients on authentic journeys of inner growth, the creation of visionary businesses that stand out in the marketplace, contribute to communities, and generate a healthy profit. Coaches, spiritual healers, sexuality teachers, social justice activists, and other visionary leaders turn to Peter for compassionate, brilliant guidance that unites strategy and soul i love that mm, thank you yeah hi that how are actually, you that my bio changes all the time as i yeah, say yeah. totally so when, you, when we had our podcast scheduled and you asked for a bio i couldn't find my normal one so i just wrote that oh nice the new st- strategy and soul came out so i'm glad you like that i that love that it it just it's what's needed, in my opinion, in the world, right? One of the reasons we're doing the podcast and one of, is to really have this conversation more and more and more and more with people and to attend to our soul um, in that way. I went to a graduate school at a place called Pacifica and their, their I don't know, theme is attending uh, to the soul of the world. Oh, that's beautiful. Right? I love right? that. Yeah, yeah. So we like to begin in the beginning. Peter, and and so what that means is, um, I would love for you to share with us what your spiritual life life was like growing up. If you had an organized one, if you didn't, mm-hmm. kind of how you felt about that, and what was your experience? Yeah, well, I listened to your your interview earlier, so I we have some things in common. But mm. one of which is I didn't really have a spiritual life growing up. Um, spirituality wasn't really talked about in my family. My dad is Jewish, my mom is Christian, and more, I don't know what, what brand of Christianity, I'd call it more humanist Christianity, where it's more about the values of love and caring and connection and um, less about religiosity and dogma. So I grew up in a household where we celebrated Christmas and Hanukkah. And when I was a kid, it was more about the presence and the family time, you know, and, and being together with family. But I never... I never got bar mitzvahed. Um, maybe I went to church or temple a few times on the Jewish high holidays or you know Christmas or Easter, but it wasn't a regular part of my life, and I wasn't really drawn to it. It wasn't pushed on me. It wasn't something I was seeking at all, and didn't really have a spiritual life until my twenties. It wasn't until I was honestly a depressed grad student at Stanford studying mechanical engineering, stuck in a lab building robots, and coming home and and just feeling miserable and got to this place where I'd been a 
valedictorian of my high school, you know, high achiever at Stanford and hit this limit of like how much achievement could hit the dopamine buttons that had me feel good. <laughs> and yeah, and I had a really depressed year. Mm. And somehow in there, I heard about um, two books. One was John Kabat-Zinn's Wherever You Go, There You Are. Mm. Um, for those who don't know him, he's a, an amazing mindfulness teacher um, who combines sort of the medical world and, and mindfulness in Massachusetts. And then the other book was Thich Nhat Hanh's um, Pieces Every Step. Ah, so I, I have it on my shelf all earmarked and you know pages are yellowed and those two books just turned me on to Buddhist practice and meditation and I just soaked it up like a dry sponge I didn't even know that I was this dry sponge for spirituality until I read these books and I just loved it and I would sit in my backyard on a couch cushion um, <laughs> my, I didn't have enough height under my hips so my back was killing me and no one was there to tell me that it didn't have to be that way. So I just sit there. My back was killing me. And I'm like, okay, mindfulness of this, mindfulness of that. I loved it. I just loved being present and having some sense of connection to my own inner world. That was really new for me. So you were, you were depressed. You're in, in, at Stanford. And somehow these books came to being in your world. Do you remember how they... Along, yeah, along with a mentor. Actually, more mm. important than the books was this mentor, Julian Gorodsky, mm. who I really, I don't know where I'd be without him. He was my first, I guess you'd call him a spiritual mentor, but he was in his 70s. I was you know, 21, 22, and we met at the design school, mm -hmm. and I was having issues with my team and came to him, and within 10 minutes, I broke down in tears, and he was there to support me. And his role was to support faculty and students with their team dynamics. And he was, um, had 40 years of experience as a shrink in Silicon Valley, working with burnt out startup you know, founders and executives. So he was someone like I've never, I'd never met before, you know, deeply steeped in his own inner world. He knew Jack Kornfield and was friends mm -hmm. with some of those original Bay Area meditators. Um, so he, he introduced me to meditation. He probably told me about those books. I imagine it was him. It was amazing. It was a mentorship. Like I, I was just so grateful for that. And we taught together for six years and went, you know, got real with each other. It was, it was an incredible connection. Yeah. Because when you talk about sitting, you know, by yourself and trying to be mindful and, and I lived in the Bay area for a while. And so I know how rich the the area is with mindfulness and with buddhist practice and all you know you can go to spirit rock anytime you want and there's all of these places and so um it's so lovely it's so lovely that that your school had this piece right so they had someone to attend to that side of you like group dynamics yeah and this was not stanford as a whole this was one sort of strange subculture within the school that yeah. had this experimental role and and i was you know lucky enough or fate have it that the two of us crossed paths so when you worked with him was it under the guise of a business mentor or a teaching mentor or was there a piece about spiritual like was there an yeah. overt piece about spirituality there there actually was we so we were um first of all just being friends and getting some mentorship from him and then he was teaching a class on team dynamics and he invited me to co-teach with him. So again, this radical intergenerational collaboration that we were doing. 
where he, he listened to me like I knew something. I had no, you know, I was 21. I had no idea, but he, he really empowered me to, you know, teach and share what I was learning. Um, so we guide our students, again, many of whom were older than me, who were in grad school or beyond. Um, we'd lead them through meditation, through walking meditation, talking about creative flow. We, we at one point had everyone make their own musical instruments and had this, what was it? It was someone Xander. There was a TED talk on how to lead like the great conductors. Bill mm -hmm. Xander, I think his name is. Mm -hmm. And we had the students watch that TED talk and then create their own instruments and play together and get into that collaborative flow. Wow. So we I mean, that is some really cool stuff that combine creativity and spirituality and design. I mean, it was, it was a really awesome course that we got to create. And also just incredibly beautiful to have someone, and it's a good reminder for me to go back to the beginner's mind and know the value of that, right? To hear people who are just coming into the work and just coming into a spiritual life and, and their newness, their freshness, mm -hmm. right? And, and what value that has for someone who's been doing it for so long that I can be blinded by mm. some of the work, right? Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. As you say that, I imagine that's a lot of what he gained from our friendship is that, you know, wide-eyed innocence as I'm learning this world from him. So now you have an awakening, kind of. I mean, is that how you would, would say it? Yeah. You know, I... I was thinking a little bit before this interview about that idea of awakening. Did I have an awakening? And I, I look back and I probably more had like a half dozen, you know, mini awakenings, mm -hmm. right? Maybe more even, right? But these little awakenings or some part of me that was asleep wakes up and I'm able to see a little bit deeper into myself or a new realm or something comes online that was numbed out or shut down. And this, yeah, this was the first, I would say that is the, sort of the first uh, awakening and having that mentor, inviting that mentor in. Yeah, the the twelve step program describes you know instead of this burning bush, right? Like you're turn around one day and you're just a believer in some sense of this educational variety, which I think is really more people's experience, at least absolutely mine, of um, just the I you know just the, they talk about the mustard seed, right? Just enough belief that maybe there's something over here and slowly over time, I can look back and see all of these several awakenings, right? I really like the idea of this part of you coming online and that part of you coming online as you walk forward. Yeah. And I think of Jack Hornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry, right? Oh awakening is a fun thing to talk about <laughs> later, but then you have the awakening and you're like, oh no, like I have this part of me that's now, you know, awake to the suffering in myself, the suffering in the world. And now I can't do you know, my old job, the old way, or, you know, can't do relationship the way I have been. Yeah. That's where the work is, right? It's between the awakenings that we have to make ourselves useful and available. Chop wood, carry water. Mm -hmm. What happened next? Um, what happened next? I did my first retreat. You mentioned spirit rock. Mm -hmm. That was a very special place for me. I did my first five day um, silent retreat, residential retreat. I remember day four of that retreat doing some walking meditation, having gone through all sorts of inner hell. <laughs> totally. And, and some, a really great peace washing over me and tears. And having this first sense of myself um, not being my outsides, not being the job, the you know, Stanford education, all of that, of really feeling my inner self, 
I don't think I had the language of soul or really think about it that way or thought about it that way. But I was just walking and crying and feeling the simplicity of who I am and the love, mm -hmm. that metta feeling of loving kindness towards myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the, my first major awakening. Like that turned my whole life around where I was in a job as a design consultant working for, you know, some pretty big companies creating innovation strategies and such. And, and then just coming back to that and be like, huh, I don't know if, like, I don't know if this is purposeful. Like, I don't know if this is the direction I want to be going. And that's really what got me more deeply rooted in my own inner personal growth, spiritual path thing. And I didn't really have language for it at the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I started following something in me that didn't match what I'd been told or set up to do in my life. And I remember one of the teachers of that retreat used the metaphor of a ship and the rudder. You have an experience like that and the rudder turns and your ship doesn't turn around right away, but it starts this long arc. And since that, that first major awakening, my life has turned, right? That brought me to coaching. It brought me to my spiritual path. It brought me you know, to all sorts of things that I see in my life fully rooted and established now that were just, just seeding back then. Yeah. Beautiful. Was it scary? Good question. I, I don't think that's the first word I would use. I'm a very curious person. Mm. I, I find my curiosity gets me into things and then my, my courage gets me out of it. Right. So there is some realm of anxiety and fear. Like that's a common experience in my life, but not like one big scary thing, more like going through some turbulence, you know, we're just showing up and finding myself in life, you know, for phases can be really challenging. That's really beautiful. I, I love that. I love the idea that, yeah, your curiosity gets you in trouble and your courage gets you out is, is a words for something I've experienced many times in my life. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. <laughs> I, will, yeah. I will say what was scary. You, you reminded mm -hmm. me that actual step of leaving that job. I stayed another year after that meditation retreat. Mm -hmm. And I remember being on that precipice of I was in a coaching certification. I had seven clients on nights and weekends, charging not a lot of money. So it was a leap of faith to say, hey, I love this coaching thing. You know, the design thing's not speaking to me the same way anymore. And I remember um, one of my bosses, I had three, three partners at this firm. I was the first employee. And one of my bosses said, hey, we have a big project coming up. We'd like you to lead it. Are you, you know? are you going to rock the project? Because my performance was a little shaky at this point. You know, my soul was, was challenging me. It was a rhetorical question, but I said, you know what? I got to sleep on it. So I had 12 hours essentially to decide whether or not I was in or out. Yeah. Talked to all my friends and family. Half of them said, you're crazy to leave this job. This is your career. You've been, your whole life is designed for the, like you're here, you've made it. What are you doing? And the other half of my friends say, go, Peter, like, take the leap. You got this. Trust yourself. It was an even split. Mm. And back on you. Yeah, back on me. And, that, and I just like, couldn't sleep that night. I came back and I made the decision to leave that job. And that same boss, who I thought would be most critical or harsh, he said, you know what? I've never regretted. He said, good for you. I've never regretted leaving a job in my life. Wow. You know, such blessings on your journey. And he said, you know, if you want to come back and consult with us, you're more than welcome to. You couldn't have asked for a better response. Yeah, I, it, was, it was so great. I mean, 
these guys have been so generous and gracious with me, Ooh. you know, <sighs> and I ended up consulting for this firm for the next two years or so part-time. Mm-hmm. And without that, I could not have established my, myself as a coach. Yeah. So it was incredible. So I had my freedom, got to pursue my passion, got to do work, you know, from a different role. It was, uh, it was really a huge gift. Well, and I just love how you, you took that leap, right? Like, it, and you were, you, I have this image of, um, there's a movie, what is it? Uh, Indiana Jones, and he's got to do this step and this, the leap of faith, right? He does not see it. It's just a cavern. And you did that. Mm-hmm. And, and you just got carried. And so many times over and over again, I have to take these leaps of faith that are so terrifying. And it's lovely to see, how, like to look back and see how it, how it showed up for you. So good for you. It's a really huge, it's a really huge accomplishment in my world, right? Yeah. Yeah. After that, my coaching brand was called Masters of the Leap. <laughs> there after you that. go. Yeah, nice. So that's funny how we, you know, us coaches, we always teach what we learned a year or two ago, right? The wounded healer. There's yeah. nothing better, right? Yeah. And uh, that's how it works. So what year was this? When was this? So this was 2010, 11, sort of in there, winter okay. 2010. And I think I'll share a parallel story of what was happening alongside the professional track that I've been sharing. Yeah, yeah. Is that I was in San Francisco. Again, like this is another sort of, it's funny how my phases of depression are sort of the ones right before the leap. I guess it is for everyone. But yeah. some of this flavor of depression was like, wow, I have a job. It's winter. You know, I'm biking to work in the dark. I'm biking home in the dark. And I was lonely. I was having a hard time out of college really making relationships and especially romantic ones. Hmm. And I dated a whole series of unavailable women, including one woman who told me she was gay the first moment we met. And somehow I didn't hear that or didn't get it. (laughs) And then ended up having this like beautiful yet excruciatingly unavailable connection with her. And at some point after a few of these flavors of relationship like that, I'm like, okay, this is not you. This is me. You know, what's, what's going on here? And at the time I was in a meditation group, which was really, you know, that thread I told you about being on the cushion myself, like that was being well-fed in community. Mm-hmm. But there was something about like spirituality and relationships, spirituality and sexuality that wasn't being filled or, or touched at all in mm. my sitting practice. So I heard about this organization called One Taste. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mm-mm. They're in, they're based in San Francisco. They're now all over the world and they teach about relationship and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I was both drawn and terrified to go to that sort of workshop and went to a workshop and they teach a practice called orgasmic meditation. It's a mindful sexuality practice. So just like sitting is a practice for your mind and heart and yoga is a practice for your body. This is sort of like yoga for your sexuality. Basically the way it works is it's between a woman and someone with a finger and she will lie down and, and take her clothes off from the waist down. Mm-hmm. And the person called the stroker, you know, man, or it could be a woman, um, will sit in a certain position and mindfully stroke her clitoris for 15 minutes. So I heard of this, I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> and yet, I, you know, as you can probably tell by now, I'm down to try anything once. <laughs> so I went to this weekend workshop, um, learned the practice, and it's, there's a very specific container around it. Um, so you're not, you don't have to be romantically involved. You don't have to even know who your partner is. Mm. You could be, you know, you could be doing it in a monogamous way with a committed partner. 
mm-hmm. but you don't need to. So I was at this workshop and scared half to death and learning about this practice and some of the philosophy around it um, and ended up having my first oming experience, orgasmic meditation, okay. with this woman, Fifi, from Hawaii, who I hadn't met before. Um, and here I am, you know, stroking her genitals. My shoulders were like up to my ears. I was so stressed out by this whole thing. And um, weird as it was, there was something in me that really clicked with this practice. I was like, oh my God, I've been trying to do this all the time in relationships. To actually be mindful and, and not try to get anywhere with an agenda, not trying to get her off, not trying to any of that, but just being present with a sensation of pleasure in, in my body and, and tuning into her and feeling that resonance with her. So in that moment, I, I found what became my, my next practice more so than sitting meditation and ended up spending the next three, more than that, three or four years pretty deeply practicing orgasmic meditation with a number of partners. And in it, a lot learning that a lot of my conditioning as a man to sort of armor up and be in my head, a lot of that was melted away through this relational um, practice. So every day I'd go, you know, go to a center and, and own with people and it works through a whole lot of shame and sort of barriers to, to feeling. Huge, it was a huge part of my journey. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting um, one, obviously. Um, so I have a lot of questions, I guess, about the practice. Because what I hear you saying is this was a really intense spiritual practice for you. Mm-hmm. It's called what? Orgasmic meditation? Orgasmic meditation. Yeah. yeah. Um, does that mean that the goal was to orgasm? No, that when they talk about orgasm, they have a different definition than our sort of conventional one. Okay. Um, they would call that climax, that moment of like going over an edge. Yeah, Woo! yeah, yeah. You know, like fireworks, <laughs> that's climax. Okay. And then orgasm, they refer to as a feeling of pleasure in the body. Okay. Um, so as the one stroking and the one being stroked, the goal is the same. And that goal is simply to feel. Right? So there may or may not be a climax in those 15 minutes of, of practice. And that's not the point. Oh, okay. Right? So it might feel um, hot and sort of, you know. Even tense. Beastly feel. It might feel very sexual. It might be more of like, ah, like the angels are singing. Like there are a bunch of different sort of flavors that come out in the practice, um, like sitting meditation. But even even when you said the first time, you were tense. Yeah. Which is fine, right? Like it looks like when I meditate, it looks like I'm serene and peaceful Mm -hmm. when that's not what I'm experiencing. A lot of times I can be totally crazy and like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, as I sit in this thing. So the woman is always the receiver, never the man. That's the way the practice is set up for, for the most part. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is culturally, um, women are conditioned to please men, mm. right? So a lot of it is culturally set up. So men have the experience of um, having their attention on someone else mm-hmm. and women have the chance to receive. There is a male stroking practice as well, but that's often introduced later just, just to flip the cultural script more than anything. Interesting. Yeah. So your mindfulness, you now have merged mindfulness and sexuality, mm-hmm. but, but the practice is not about relationship. I mean, it is, right? But not, mm-hmm. not the actual physicality that you said. Like it can have relationship or it cannot have relationship between the two people. Right. So how did that, or did it start to affect your relationship? Because part of what you said was that 
you were missing spirituality and relationship? Mm-hmm. I, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. So it's not, how do I say it? The, the practice itself is sort of neutral and that it can be applied in any sort of relationship, meaning you don't need to be married to Om, right? Like there's something beautiful about um, just meeting someone who you feel safe with because they know the practice and the, you know, the communication structure around it. And they're safe enough to surrender into this practice with you. And then you don't owe each other anything. You don't have to have tea after, you don't have to be Facebook friends, <laughs> but you're just there for the experience itself. But um, everyone's a willing participant. It comes yeah, to it's all, it. You know, between consenting adults, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. you get to have the experience itself. Like that can be very liberating. And some people use oming that way. Mm-hmm. Other people are in committed monogamous relationships and they own with their partners. And it's a way to, you know, connect in their busy world in the morning before work or at night or whatever, just to have a chance where it's not, it's not sex, right? It's a practice space, mm-hmm. um, but just a way to drop in and sync up with each other. So how did it, so that's, this is a, I have never heard about this. So yeah, cool. I would love Welcome. to hear, yeah, I would love to hear how this, Part of your journey or this next spiritual practice changed you if it did yeah it did immensely i don't i'm not really an omer anymore um i haven't owned in a few years at least so it's not one of my main practices but it definitely changed me profoundly forever meaning that before oming i was coming a lot from my head like pros and cons lists of things and with women it was a lot about charming and like how do i say the right thing and all this mental garbage honestly, that was getting in the way of what I really wanted, which was what I learned through Oming as a reference is like how to relate from feeling, like what actually feels good in this moment. So in in the language of Oming, what is the resonant stroke, right? Is it light? Is it heavy? Is it right? So, so the way I move through the world now is way more feeling based, like, oh, what, what feels good in my communication, in my coaching, in my romantic connection? So is it about the body? Is it about an emotion or both? Both, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a very integrated practice. Right? So it, it helped connect some things that were disconnected for me. Like Absolutely. it connect my genitals and my heart, right? My sex drive and my love in a way that for me and a ton of men, especially women as well, but especially men, like those energies can be really disconnected. You, know, you either want to have sex with someone or you can love them, mm-hmm. right? And like those two got deeply integrated for me. Um, yeah, women- my brain in a more, you know, more of a backseat, like, okay, brain, you can help, but you don't have to run the entire show. Yeah. So. I love that, you know, I do believe that spirituality is about integration. And that's what I hear you talking about, mm-hmm. right? About having the whole person, having this be about all these different areas all these different parts of you. What happens next? Yeah, what happens next? So that was around, well, I started that coaching program around the time I quit my job, right? So I learned to be a coach through them and there were other people who trained me. And so you learn to to teach oming, but you also learn life coaching skills. So the whole, I was learning the whole thing at once in this year long program. So you use that as as part of, you, you were coaching. Yeah, but the coaching was more life coaching, you know, communicate, you know, verbal communication. I often didn't talk about oming with my clients. Often it wasn't relevant. We were talking about their careers or just didn't need to bring it in. Other clients I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I left my job. I was, um, had my own independent coaching practice. You know, a lot of, 
from that point on, I was integrating a lot. That was a lot that I was learning. So I was doing some sitting meditation. I was still oming. I was coaching. I think that's when business started to become part of my spiritual practice, actually. Yes. Where I was trying to do business and had a lot of arrogance. Like, oh, I was this hotshot innovation consultant for big companies. So I should know how to, you know, get a coaching client Mm. or build my mailing list. And what I found is that the transformation industry was so different. And when what I was selling is my own service from the heart, it was so much more vulnerable. You know, I was selling $100,000 projects for our company, no problem. But when it came to selling my own services, it was a whole new, whole new beast. Had a real journey of hiring some really terrible business coaches, people who taught, (laughs) you know, essentially old school sales cloaked in spiritual language Mm. and found myself, um, yeah, actually hurting some people, you know, running some sort of sales scripts on people, Mm. you know, just trying to make my life work. Mm-hmm. Right. And doing the best I could, but doing these really inauthentic sales processes. Yes. And then, and then from there, um, meeting one of my early business mentors, Mark Silver, mm-hmm. who I still adore. I love the work he does at Heart of Business. And he really showed me that business can be spiritual. He has a Sufi background. Oh, nice. And he, I love what he does. It's weird. You know, he'll do sort of Sufi chanting. We'll have spiritual development days, you know, and chanting and sort of heart guidance and and then next call is talking about sacred selling yeah so it was amazing i was just so excited by that and finding that i could finally integrate my sense of ethics and spirituality with the way i was doing business Mm -hmm. and that became the thread that's turned into my business now uh four or five years later where i'm teaching like how do you you know soul and strategy how do you stay connected to your soul Mm-hmm. and your heart sense of what's right and what's wrong and you know truly like what do you want for the world and then how do you integrate all of your business practices your curriculum your marketing your selling with with who you are and who you want to be yeah that's beautiful so that business thread has been really profound and and i also love the businesses at the confluence of so many other taboos we already talked about sexuality being that sort of first big taboo i confronted in business, you have money, you have selling, like somehow all that shadow has to be integrated into shadow and light coming together and into business. You know, I, I've done so much work as a coach and for so many years, for decades, but as trying to get, it, it was had to be of service, mm-hmm. but, and that meant no money, right? And so to really start to undo that piece of it's mm-hmm. actually of service to people to pay me. Yeah. Both for my own livelihood as well as for their level of commitment. Like energy is money, mm-hmm. right? But I don't want to be the vulture, right? The vulture, this like conniving person who's trying to get you to come over here. And because our society is so wonky around money and so not balanced, to learn how to get integrated spiritually with money, with the work is is such a hard integration and they hear that struggle for you. It's so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's so important. Yeah. The number of spiritual teachers and spiritual people being martyrs, you know, and then not being able to pay rent or they're desperate or they get resentful then because, you know, their clients are sucking them dry and they're enabling it, you know, then blame their clients. It's, it's painful. 
And to really own that, like it's, it's important for the, like boundaries are so, that's what it is, right? It's the boundaries and we're just not, I was not taught boundaries and I was not taught that this is livelihood and that it's good for both parties to have that exchange and, and to really hold that. And, and so to go into these calls for me to like have this, I need to pay the rent right? Mm -hmm. But also Mm -hmm. of you're either supposed to be with me or you're not. And so I get to, you know, when I have that experience fear, right? It doesn't matter what the fear is about to come back and get spiritual and centered, right? So that Mm -hmm. I can be present to see if we're supposed to work together. It's a practice on steroids, right? (laughs) It's a spiritual. Yeah. And money, and money isn't simple. Mm -mm. Like I'm, I'm still figuring out so much around money and it doesn't Mm -hmm. get simpler. Right. One of my mentors and friends, Michael Turtis, talks about the martyr mercenary spectrum. Uh, We're on one side, we have what we talked about, right? This yeah. spiritual martyrs. Can't charge for it. I got to give it away. It comes from God, right? Yeah. Okay. But you need to pay, pay the bills. Um, yeah. And then on the other side, mercenaries, who are there plenty of out there? Yeah. It's all about you and your conversion rates and, you, you know, getting paid. Mm-hmm. Right. And then in the middle, like, what is that balance between where you're in your magnificence? That's how Michael talks about it. And, you know, that can shift in different phases of our life. I've charged more. I've charged less. There's this ongoing dance of, of money and what, what feels right. And also as my awareness is expanded around social justice issues and privilege issues, um, that's made money more complicated, not less. Right? Mm-hmm. How I want to, you know, use my rates and, and develop pricing systems that aren't necessarily fixed but depend more on, on different social factors that are coming together. So my heart goes out to everyone who's struggling with money. It's so real. It's so real. And we're in such a transitional time, right? Capitalism is, you know, I don't know how long it'll be around. It feels like we're in this awkward space between capitalism and what's next. And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're figuring it out together. So what I hear, and please correct me if this is how I hear what your story yeah. is, is it's, you know, you did what you were supposed to do, right? Which is uh, valedictorian, Stanford. I mean, what a great business card, right? You work at Stanford, you got a Stanford education and, and you do all of these things. And I bet you were making pretty good money at your design job. Yeah. And, and, then, and then to have, you know, you hit a depression and then to start to feed the part of you that is not being fed. Mm-hmm. And then you have what it sounds like to me systematically went into each area of your life that doesn't have a spiritual voice Yeah, and it, and entered into that. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, cause now the money work, you know, juggle where yeah. you know it's a spiritual solution, but how it looks day to day and, and, and then to add it to, you know, social justice. Yeah. And there's, there's more, I don't know. I mean, I have to share at least, a yeah. little bit about these two areas because that's not it. Like, I guess my spiritual path is more like this voracious curiosity. Mm-hmm. How can we include, I, we include everything in life. Mm-hmm. Like to me, spirituality is almost a, not a thing. It's like spirituality is a connection to all that is. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not religious in that way, I don't have one lineage that I've come from. Mm-hmm. To me, spirituality is like, how can we live in that sense of oneness? So I'm sort of like a heat-seeking missile for anything that feels separate from. Mm. My sexuality is not, you know, oh, you know, a sexuality or oh, money. Right? So anything that I'm pushing away is like 
a sign that that's the next place for me to look at and, you know, and learn, you know, grow and learn in with my spiritual practice. Yeah. Which is a, which is a, you know, a Buddhist idea of equanimity, right? You're not, you're neither seeking nor mm -hmm. pushing away. Mm -hmm. And so it's a great barometer, right? For where you're out of alignment and how to get back in alignment. Totally. It reminds me of, I'm going to butcher this, but some Tibetan Buddhist phrase is, or a prayer is something like, God grant me the appropriate challenges. Please may my life not be too easy or so hard that I go into panic and can't learn. The courage of that prayer is not what I'm willing to do. not what I'm willing to do. I think that's been my prayer, either consciously or unconsciously. It's like, okay, what's the next thing? You know, next thing, hopefully, that I can handle, you know, mm. with some mess, but some, some grace through it. Ah, it is. So we're running out of time, and I just want to say thank you for, your, for being honest and being vulnerable and being transparent in your personal journey. It, it's so important for me, personally, to hear everyone's journey and to find where I am different, where I am same, where I can learn and how that it, it, it's profound for me. And it, and it feels like you just really opened up to me. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you for making a safe space to share. Yeah. I think part of why I said yes to this is I, I haven't been interviewed about my spirituality before. This is a first. Right? I've been interviewed about business and purpose and all these other things, but this mm-hmm. is, this is like the big, this is the vulnerable, real question. Like, what's your journey really? Yeah, I mean, and I just, it, it, it is a conversation that I have in my day-to-day life. And I just believe that it's important. And so um, I'm, I am honored by all of the people that are excited about it and want to come talk to me about it and, and share their personal journey. Because someone out there is going to hear something in what you have to say and say, me too. Yes, that, mm-hmm. you know, and that is, and then you get to light it up, right? Light up the next person and yeah. make their journey a little bit easier because maybe they can do it too. And, and that's the work. Like mm-hmm. that's the service. So yeah. that, feels, there, yeah, that feels like a good place to pause it. We might have to do a part two. Oh, <laughs> yes. We'll we, got, we got to 2014 or so. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll do a two. Th- so, so there will be a part two to hear about the. I don't know if there's an. We'll end. give a. We'll give a teaser. Well, there's definitely no end, but we'll talk yeah. about psychedelics, oh. social justice, oh. and leaving the Bay Area, which is all in open. Oh, maybe relationship. A little more on relationship than leaving the Bay Area, which is all, all in right. process. So, thank God, I don't need to go there today. That's but okay. There's, there's more. Yeah, well, then we will have you more, you know, we're books being written. Yeah, it's beautiful. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And we'll have a part two. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you you for listening. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode of Spirituality Out Loud. Be sure to rate us, review us and like us on Facebook and share us with your friends.